pray with me. Father in heaven, oh, you're so good to us. I don't just mean that, Lord. I don't, I'm not trying to be a cheerleader. Lord, when I really think about it, when I really, when I, when I open the book of my life, Lord, and I see how faithful you are and how many reasons I've given you, Lord, to not be faithful, when I look at all the reasons why I, I encourage you, Lord, to turn your back on me, and you did not. You were a faithful father to me. You were a steadfast friend. You were a lover, God, of my soul, Father, when I gave reasons, Lord, for you to, to completely annihilate me, Lord, and still yet I'm here today. And not just me, but, Father, in every life, I, I just want to say thank you. I need you today. I need you to anoint me as I preach. I need you to anoint their ears, God, to hear. But, Lord, I just want to stop and just say, I'm, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for you. Pray, God, you bless our time together in the Word. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So about a month ago, I guess, uh, Julie and I, was it, was it a month ago? Uh, uh, yeah, August. Yeah, it was August. Um, we got a chance to get away uh, on vacation and we went to some parts in the world, in America, uh, that wasn't America. It really was America, but it wasn't America. At the same time, it was America. And so um, was, we got there, we realized, man, not every place in America is the same, right? And this felt like kind of a third world thing to me, and I realized how important a sanitation department is. I didn't even know how important that was. As we're driving down the street, I'm just like, I'm so thankful for meth then, even though they forget sometimes to pick my stuff up, you know. But I'm thankful for the fact that I can still call them and come pick trash up. I don't know if you guys realize how important that is, but you and I, as Americans, we live in a life of luxury. Now, some of y'all would say, Pastor Scott, if you knew my life, you would not think I live luxurious. Or I would, I would say, wait a minute, as I looked up, he, here are the top ten essential things that even the poorest Americans have in contrast to the rest of the world. Clean water, electricity, health care, government assistance, public education, sanitation, internet access, because I don't care where you are or what bills you ain't paying, you know you'll get Wi-Fi somewhere. Uh, obviously the library gets free Wi-Fi. And then there's a legal system for you. You're always entitled to legal system. There's public transportation. Not that I know of any around here in Harrison, but there are if you live some other places. And there's also a great um, possibility for consumer goods. One thing I did not know how important it was, I was pumping gas while we were on vacation. They didn't regulate how the gas goes in the, in the uh, car. And so I realized that I had filled the vehicle I was driving when the gas was on my shoes, you know. And so uh, I thought, thank God that somebody told a man in America that, you know what? Make the gas cut off when the tank's full. Aren't you glad? That, that seems small, but it's huge. And you and I, we live in a huge life now. I don't know uh, where you're at in terms of technology, but we're also advanced in technology quite a bit. Think about it. You can tell your house what to do. Some of y'all, that's the only thing you're telling what to do, right? Uh, you turn the lights on and off just by walking into a room or saying, hey, Siri or Alexa, whatever it might be. Oh, uh, hey, calm down, calm down, calm down. <laughs> calm down. She's like, oh, yes, master. Okay. 
run the vacuum cleaner, start the coffee maker, lock your doors, mow your lawn. I don't know if y'all got one of those. Uh, it would struggle at my house. I'm sure it would probably die at yours. If you, if you buy a Tesla, you can read while you drive through the city, not even have to pay attention to where you're going. Watch that video, Tesla, it takes you through some, this guy's not even paying attention to what he's doing, where he's going, it's just driving everywhere. In fact, they have semis that drive cross-country. They don't even need a driver to ever interact or intervene. He just sits there and pays attention to the road, and it does everything for him automatically. Did you know this, this existed? This is our day in life, right? Our phones provide us instant communication anywhere at any time, and we can talk to anyone. Knowledge at our fingertips. Now, if you're like me, I'm not mechanically inclined, so when I have to work on the vehicle, I'm always on YouTube, all right? I don't know about you guys, but there is, YouTube's my best friend. And there's a list of endless things as our modern-day comforts cocoon us or, or they numb us from suffering. We don't know about suffering. Suffering is a bad thing here in America. I know when I think about suffering, the, when I try to understand how important suffering is, and as it relates to the body, I always think about the worst pain I've ever felt my entire life. That is when I kick my third toe, my middle toe, on the bed. That's just the worst. I'm telling you what, we can get into a fight, but you stomp my toe, I'm out. I'm done. I'm, I'm gone. I can't. That's pain that's real for me. In fact, in fact, when I hit it, my body has learned, because we had this bed, and the, and the, the comforter has an allusion to it. It makes you think that it's, that's the end of the bed, but it's not. It keeps going a little further. And so when I walk around there and I kick that thing, what I realize is my body is unified. It is unified. Suffering causes your body to be one. Just like that, all of a sudden my brain kicks in, freezes my whole body. I just fall and plank on the bed and I'm face down in the bed and I'm tight and at the same time, I'm trying to breathe the pain out. And that breathing is actually good because it sanctifies me, right? So I don't say things I should not say. And I don't throw things I should not be throwing. It is working as a one body here, right? And when I get back up and I hurt, what happens is, is all of a sudden, my whole body realizes that I must redistribute the weight. And so I'm just kind of walking on the hill and I'm grabbing support, you know. And I'm just talking like this because I know I'm hurting. It's funny how pain clarifies something. Because I don't care if I was holding the Mona Lisa. If I hit my toe, she's done, you know? <laughs> pain draws you in and makes you focus on the things that are most important. And they leverage every aspect of your strength and your body to make you realize that one thing matters. Live, you know? Live even in a stump toe. I want you to know that it is the same with the body of Christ. I would say the reason why the church always prevails the most in, in, in antiquity and history is when the church is suffering the most because there's no other time that the church is more unified than when it's suffering, just like our body. We are all one. Paul tells us that. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And so we all know what, it, we all know what to do when, when suffering comes 
to our physical body, but what I wonder this morning is if we all know what to do when it comes to suffering in Christ's body. How well do you suffer? Today I want to talk to you about another aspect of biblical fellowship in being one body, and that is the fellowship of suffering. Nobody's leaving. That's good. That's great. Because we need to understand that. Like, we need to understand this. This is important. This is important. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Romans 8.17 says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says this, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So cumulatively what Paul is trying to say here is that we ought to share in the sufferings of Christ. And that if we do, we also share in the glory with him. Since, since Christ is the head of the body, right, and we are all connected to him, then any suffering Jesus experiences, we experience. Any suffering that anybody in the body experiences, you might be the middle toe. And if you suffer pain, we all suffer pain. So the question is, is what kind of suffering do we share? And are we really sharing in suffering living in this world? For you guys know that living in America, and particularly in this world, that the world seeks to, endlessly seeks, to make a Christian comfortable selfish, sedentary, self-centered. It's all about us, right? We want to be comfortable. It's easier to sit on the couch, drink sweet tea in an air-conditioning cool home, right? And watch the hogs. Did they lose or did they win? They lost. And that's why I don't watch because it unsanctifies me. <laughs> and I repented of that habit a long time ago. And matter of fact, it was an LSU game that, that I said, Lord, I'm done. I can't do it no more because I, I, I continually fall out of grace with you. So I'm done with that. So what I want you to know this morning is uh, I want to talk to you about the unifying power of, of a shared suffering in our faith. There's three things I want to highlight today, and they are the persecution, the partnership, and the participation of suffering. We may not experience it personally, but the first of the sufferings the believer shares is that of persecution. Persecution is the suffering a believer faces for the sake of Christ. Persecution is not because you didn't clean your room. Persecution is not because you didn't pay your bill. Persecution is, is not for you, didn't, you broke the law. None of those things at all. Persecution is when a believer faces um, ridicule or mistreatment or discrimination or being... Um, uh, ostracized because of our faith in Christ. When I look back through this, um, I guess, pattern of life in a, in a believer, I go all the way back to the persecutions. And under Rome, there were all kinds of persecutions. I just want to think about, just for a second, what is it like to be persecuted now? And what was it like to be persecuted then? In case you don't know, or this idea is new to you, persecution really ramped up during uh, the Rome, Roman Empire. We see a few situations, and this is just a drop in the bucket. 
But a lady by the name of Blandina was a woman who was tied to a pole for a wild beast to consume her, yet she prayed and nothing ate her. She was attempted to be tortured or eaten three more times until finally she gave up and they pulled another young kid with her who was 15 years old and they both tortured them until they died by the sword. But while they were torturing them, in fact, uh, Fox uh, Book of Martyrs says that they made no regard to their age or their sex. They tortured them like they were grown, violent men. But in this process, they prayed and praised God, and it said that people who were watching them in the amphitheater gave their life to Christ right when they were dying. Wow, that's the power of God. Others were dressed up in the skins of animals and made to walk around while beasts and other dogs tormented them. They were secured to trees with stiff wax, set on fire, boiled in oil, burned alive at the stake. Zenon, he's a Roman nobleman, and about 10,000 other Christians were all crucified on Mount Ararat with crowns on their head, spears stuck in their side to imitate and blaspheme the crucifixion of Jesus. 10,000. 10,000. Imagine almost all of Harrison being crucified with crowns on their head and spears on their side. And these persecutions were just a drop in the bucket that we see in Rome's 300 years of persecution. But here's what we know. It was said during Nero's reign who, who lit his garden with human candles, basically. It was said this. It said, this persecution was general throughout the whole Roman in, empire, but it rather increased than diminished the spirit of Christianity. Because when you suffer in the body of Christ, there is a oneness that comes in there. Now, I am not asking you to jump on a pole and be eaten by a wild beast, but what I want to know is, is what does persecution look like for you and me? Paul says this, Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice. I love Paul. I rejoice in my sufferings. When's the last time you rejoiced in your suffering? You probably say, oh me, oh my, right? That's how we say, Lord, it's me. I'm hurting still. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, in my body, in what I feel and what I can discern, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. What is Paul saying here? Paul is not saying, I have come to fulfill what Christ lacked in atoning for your, your life. He is not saying that he's afflicted, he's suffering so that you and I can uh, further the salvation in our life. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is, is that whatever suffering I must endure in order to present Christ's love as a personal and bodily sacrifice, I'll do that for the church. I'll do that for my Lord. Let me say that differently. Because the church needs someone to step up and present the love of Christ to people who very well may bring me physical suffering as well as emotional suffering, I'll gladly share in that suffering. That's the persecution that Paul is talking about. For this is the suffering that Christ endured, right? The world may know God's love for him. Philippians says further that he says, he says, the Lord came down. God's love of the world that he gave his only begotten what? Son. This was not an easy thing to do. The, the, the cross was not an easy thing to do. But he suffered for us that we might know God's love. So what does this mean for you and me? 
Uh, that's, that's great, Pastor Scott. Sometimes when we read Scripture, it feels antiquated and it's distance from us. And we know what we should do, but we don't really make that stick or apply to us. So let's bring it close to our lives. What does this mean for you and me? For me and you to share in a persecution like this, we must be willing to risk, I want to say this clearly, everything. Everything. And I think sometimes when I say everything, we don't realize that we're not just talking about life, but we really mean lifestyle. Everything. In order to present the love of Christ. If your lifestyle is contradicting the love of Christ in your life, it must die. Sometimes I think it would be easier to die for Christ than to live dead for Christ. As if you don't matter anymore. As if you don't exist anymore. As if your aspirations and your plans and your ideas and your schedules, all those things don't matter anymore. To live dead. To, be, to, to become one. To be, to uni, be unified in suffering. So what, what, is, what is Paul talking about? Or what does John actually talk about? He says this, this kind of living produces a unity that lets the world know that God is who he says he is. John 17 says this in 21. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When you and I are unified in suffering and we share in suffering, what we see is that we are walking in unity. And this unity is, is allowing the world to believe that Christ has come. Which is the reason why we preach. Should be the reason why we get up and we share our faith and our testimony. And further on, he says this so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you have some people in your life that don't realize that? Here's how you know they don't love you. <laughs> if they don't love you, then they don't know that Christ loves them. They may have heard it, they have, may have thought about it, but they have not grasped what love does. In the same way, if you have some people in your life that you don't love, I would ask you, do you know God loves you? Because you should be giving out what you're getting in. So here's my question for us today. To what extent are you willing to suffer? What extent are you willing to suffer? It's so ready for us to say, I'll give my life if it costs me. That's easy to say. I can ask you, are you ready to give your life if it costs you? But really, what I really want to know is this, is are you ready to live your life as if it costed you? Are you living as if it costs you? If you said yes, then what little sacrifice is it for us to give him our schedule, to give him our relationships, to give him our comfort or our reputation? I know y'all are quiet this morning. Because that's, this is a sacrifice. You say, Pastor Scott, I don't, you don't understand. If I gave him my relationships, my reputation, my schedule, my comforts, what would I be? Everything that looks like him. We get so busy trying to be the best version of us and hoping that God's magic dust will transform us into being... Uh, an excellent house. This morning as I was praying, 
I begin to understand what we often do is we live in an earthly house and we're following scriptural principles hoping that this house that we live in magnifies God when really what Christ has asked us to do is to abandon that house and inherit the kingdom of God. That has everything all ready for you. What he's asking you to do is to leave all that you are and all that you want to be there and come be a good steward of his authority, his power, his love, his name, his reputation, his ideas, his dreams, his rewards, those things. To leave your shanty behind and walk through the doors of a kingdom and say, this is where I live. This is my father's house. But you must be sacrificing something in your life. Church, what would it look like? What would it look like if we all acted like one in the body of Christ as our head and we shared in the suffering that unites us all? Look at what it says in scriptures that will happen if we, if we do this. 1 Peter 4.12 says this. Beloved, that's you. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's good. Because sometimes when things are going bad in my life, I have to ask myself, did I do something wrong? Had you ever thought that before? Lord, that I, me- I, I messed up. I messed up. I messed up because my life's not perfect. Something's been wrong. I, I serve a perfect God. I must have a perfect life. That's not what the word says. In fact, if you're living a life that's like that, you're living a life that is out of sync with the New Testament. The New Testament says, here's how your life should look like. That when you go against fiery trials, no, nothing strange is happening to you. That should be expected. But he says this, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Man, let's just sit here for a minute on this scripture. When I read this today, I was like, oh, Lord, just get it in me. Like, like I just want to know that. I don't, I don't know if I want to hurt, you know, to that extent just yet. But, but then he says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do you hear how huge that is? Paul is saying, believer in Christ, you should not be surprised at the testing of our faith. We know that. James says, count it all joy, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith is producing something. It's producing steadfastness. Amen. However, he also says this, however great we rejoice at the revealing of his glory is how great we should rejoice at the sharing of his suffering. I want to introduce something to you. Suffering is proof of the glory. The suffering now is the proof of the glory to come. You should be just as excited for the suffering as you are for the glory. Because you've not seen the glory, but the suffering is proof that it shall come. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? He says rejoice. Here's what Paul is also saying he didn't write down. Don't mess it up. Don't mess that suffering up. When that suffering comes your way, don't, I don't know why, I give, I serve, I love, I do everything God asked me to do, and you still won't come down. 
Quit being a baby. Suck it up. That's proof of that suffering. That's proof of that suffering. Why don't you step back and say, Lord, I thank you for the hard time. I thank you for the difficult time. I thank you when I failed you and the hardships and the all rest. And I just thank you, Lord, because this is proof that I'm going to get this over here one day. I'm gonna, this is going to be mine. That's going to be mine. That's mine now. And that heaven is going to wait me above. It will be mine later. And I thank you, Lord, that you gave me proof because I'm somebody who's visual and I need something to wrap my hand and my heart around. So smile. If we're a church that's afflicted, y'all will be the most smiling people I know. Walking here, I'll bless God. He's giving me proof today, Pastor. <laughs> proof? I got proof today. Do you got proof? And then he says this. He says, when we are insulted for the name of Christ, it is an indication that we are blessed. And serves as evidence for the spirit of glory and of God to be on you. Wow. I don't know about y'all, but you know kind of my history, my past. I'm not one to be disrespected. It is hard for me. I am, <laughs> God, thank you for proof. Thank you for proof. Thank you for proof, Lord. And so when you're insulted, he's saying, it's an indication we ought to be blessed at the spirit of glory and God rest upon us. Somebody insult me. Insult me. Insult me. Say something bad about me. Say I'm a lunatic. I'm crazy. Watch out. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. I love Jesus. I love, you love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I'll be mad. I'll be mad. I'll be crazy. I'll be a lunatic. It's a, say something about me. Say, that man has lost his mind. Doesn't he know a pastor's supposed to be dignified and refined and eloquent? Say something about me. I need some evidence to know that the spirit of glory and God is upon me. Say it. Don't go to that church. It's crazy. You don't know what crazy is. But I would love to know that authentically, and not just because people do get weird, but that his spirit of glory and his spirit of God rest on me. Oh, I, there's times in my life where I struggle, but to know that his spirit rests on me. It, it, it's, it's a different way of thinking, church, that we could actually reframe our mind into thinking the insult is evidence that I am favored. Oh, that's good for me. That's good for me. How much time do I? It's 11.04. Thank God. Hallelujah. I got an hour left. All right, let's go. The second thing is this. How else can we enter into the fellowship of suffering? Pastor Caleb, I ain't going to have no voice next week. I'm going to go ahead and pray and get ready to preach. That is suffering with those in fellowship. How, how do we do that? The second one is partnership. Suffering with those in fellowship. Remember when Jesus told Saul in Acts, he says, Acts 9, 4, 4 through 5, and failing to the ground, or falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, what I want you to see here is Jesus tells Saul that because you are persecuting the church in Damascus, you are persecuting me. Jesus has already died, rose again, and went to the Father. Yet he is saying, because you are affecting the church, you're afflicting the church, he says, you're afflicting me. Oh, this is so good. This is a profound truth. We are so intimately united with Christ that whatever affects him affects us. And whatever affects us affects him. He says, somebody is messing with my people. And I feel it. I know it. Because Christ regards the suffering of believers as his suffering we can share in the fellowship of his suffering as we identify with other believers who suffer. If you can share the sufferings of Christ and his suffering is for other people, you and I, we suffer with them. Look what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 32 to 33 says. He says this, remember those days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, something you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. So what he's saying here is simply this. There were times when you suffered on your own, but then there were other times that the church stood side by side. Now, the, the last time we, we, we met, we talked about the word kenonia, right? That was, the, that was the Greek word that was used to, to explain to us what biblical fellowship was in the New Testament. And this is a derivative of that word. So the, so the actual phrase side by side is kenonius. And that word is simply saying that you stood as, as the Bible, as, the, as biblical fellowship stands, as the body of Christ stands, you stood side by side with us. You partnered with us. You were there with us. Now, did you, did you uh, come and unlock us out of jail? No. But you brought water. You brought funds when we needed it. You sent words of encouragement. You prayed. You stood side by side with us. Biblical fellowship, church, is more than just food and fun. It's more than just reading and studying the Word of God. Biblical fellowship may involve blood. It may involve sweat. It may involve tears. And it may involve, I don't know, whatever else the Lord has in His mind. But it's standing side by side. When you got married to your bride, husbands, you stood next to her, side by side, as the minister said, and I now pronounce to you, my question is, is what would you do for her? What would you do for her? Would you stand side by side with her and make sure everything she needed, you were there for her? This is, this is incredible concept because this is what we really see the heart of missions come from. That people are somewhere else in this world suffering for the sake of Christ. And you and I, all we have to do from our air-conditioned sanctuaries is write a check to support them, which is a real thing. Sometimes we don't realize how easy a missions check is because it's a kind of an easy thing for us. But as a missionary, when you get that check in, Pastor Randy, Karen, right? When you get that check-in and now you're able to do what you could not do before because your heart was ready to be this way, but you were limited in this way, and God moves his body to enable you, and now you're walking into the thing you've been praying about for a long time. That's when the body of Christ is. I share your suffering, missionary. I hear what's going on. 
Or I'll pray with you in your newsletter this morning. You got something in your hand. We have a missionary spotlight over there. We don't put that over there just to be cute and be churchy and be fancy. That's somebody you can suffer with. That's somebody you can pray for. That's somebody who has a real problem and a real need and a real situation in this world. And your life may be great and that's wonderful. But your life is great because their life is not great. And the Lord's putting you two together so you can be the body and uphold that middle toe. He needs you to be there. He needs you to support them, to stand side by side. Y'all being quiet this morning. I feel like I'm giving my all this morning. Y'all just stow it. Amen. Bless God. Do y'all hear what I'm saying this morning? You understand how important it is to suffer with people? No, no, you don't. No, you don't. Let me me explain this to you. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-17 says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Eternal weight. Don't let that Bible phrase just go, oh, that's cute. Eternal weight of glory. You don't know what that's like. You can't even conceive how great that is. We just have to tell our mind that is something so great and so powerful and so wonderful that I could never truly understand it. And the fact that you can't understand it but yet receives it is also an indication of how great that it is. For us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What's better than that? What's better than that? What's better than that? The answer is nothing is. Nothing is. And Paul says this, that when missionaries suffer, or evangelists suffer, or other people suffer, or whoever it might be in the body of Christ that we know, they're suffering. Did you know that right now our body is suffering? The church in Ukraine is suffering. People in China are suffering. South America, Africa, Europe, these people are underground, they're suffering. People in, the, in, uh, uh, in Israel, in Gaza, in, the, in Jordan area, in, in, in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, they're worshiping God, but they're worshiping God quietly in suffering. And that's your brother over there. That's your sister over there. Praying, oh God, save me. God, am I alone? I feel like I'm all alone, Lord. Everybody else around me is getting their heads chopped off. And I'm just trying to keep my my family together. But God, even if I have to die, for the sake of Christ, I will. I just pray, God, you said you send help from the sanctuary. That's us. That's us. Do we live a life in such a way that somebody else's life is depending on it? Do we give and do we pray? What do we do with that? Because somebody else is desperately depending on you and me being the part of the body that can come with strength, that can come with authority, that can come with power, like you've been filled and given. Amen? Last thing is this, as the worship team comes on back. The last way we share in Christ's suffering is through the participation the participation in grieving over the sin that grieves the heart of God. Whether that sin is in us 
or that sin is in our society around us, we ought to be suffering over the grieved heart of God concerning sin. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. It says, the Lord saw, this is the NIV verse, verse 94, before they get into all those gender crisis things. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. I just want to reread that again. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Here's my question. Why was the Lord's heart filled with pain? Was it because they were doing naughty things? They doing bad things? Were they being sinful in their actions? You know, I would say that the reason why his heart was filled with pain was because he knew what man once was. He knew how he had made man. He had made man perfect. And now he looks down and he sees what man truly is. You know, if you have kids, one of the greatest disappointments you ever have in your kids is when your kids don't live up to what you know that they, they can do. Because you see them, you're like, there's so much more in them. And they live another way. That's, that's, a, that's a hard thing for a parent. Because who else knows and believes them like, like we do? This is what God is saying. God is saying, my heart is grieved because I know what I created man to do and he's not that. Notice God was grieved at the sin they were acting out. He was not grieved, I'm sorry, at the sin they were acting out. He was grieved at the heart behind it. Too many times in life, you and I, we grieve over the actions of man. We look at society, we continue to see things like abortion and homosexuality and sex trafficking and other forms of wickedness. And what I wonder is, is that are we really grieving because God's grieving? Or are we just really upset because it's offended our religion, not so much our righteousness? I don't like those things because they're really against my views. Or do we see those things in life and we say, got to be hurting my daddy he sees every one of those people who are living that way and he knows what they could be and yet they choose something lesser man do you hear me in that when sin walks through that door it's not about what they're doing it's about what they're believing that they believe that they're built for something other than what God made them to be that is a difficult thing for us. And if we're going to share in suffering as a church body, let us share in the grieving of the sin in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, in our church, in our city. Are, are there things to be grieved in Harrison? Absolutely. That's how we share in suffering. That's how we connect with the Father. Because He sees people who are not living up to what He made them to be. And I would say, church, if we're going to be a church that is unified in suffering, 
we got to grieve what grieves the heart of God. If it hurts him, it hurts us. It's not a violation of our rights. It's not a contradiction of our religion. You can push all that stuff aside. At the end of the day, what matters is my father's heart. He's filled up with that pain. And because his heart is filled with that pain, so is mine. Would you stand with me this afternoon? I really struggle with how to close on this because there is a corporate response to us. We'll do that. But I also want to make time for a personal response. So every head bowed, every eye closed. There's a few questions I just want to ask you. You tell me if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. I first want to ask you to prayerfully consider what extent are you willing to suffer for the name of Christ? Are you willing to live dead? Are you willing to live as if it costed you everything to live this way? If that's you, I'm going to invite you just a minute to come down and pray. To join me in prayer. My second question is this, is how much are you willing to stand side by side with those who are facing suffering in the body of Christ? Maybe you need to give more. Maybe you need to pray more. Maybe you need to grab that person's face, a missionary, stick it on your refrigerator, and every time you walk by, you remember them in prayer every time. The last thing is this, is are you grieving the heart of God over man's sin, over our sin? Or are you just angry that your view has been challenged? The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. I just want to encourage you to come down here and, and pray here's what I'm asking you to do I don't want you to come down here and kneel I want us to come down and be a body to be one every weak area of our life is a weak area for this church I know I got some things to pray about myself I just need to know that there's somebody else the Lord's speaking to as I sing would you join me